Welcome to this episode of the Blue Lineage podcast series. This is our final episode of the Timeline series. Uh, next week, we will have one bonus episode, and then we'll kind of have an outro or final discussion of the timeline, just uh, kind of where things were left off. Uh, the timeline was goes to 1985. Obviously, that was quite a long time ago, and we'll discuss a little bit why the timeline ends in 1985 today. But obviously, there's a lot of uh, a lot of things that have happened since then. Uh, there can be a discussion of where music uh, has gone since then, where it's going. You can get we can get in a discussion of you know whether or not there are new genres that could be included on the timeline. You know, have we left this hip hop genre? Um, I think overall we're still pretty steeped in the hip hop genre in addition to the other genres that were on the timeline, you know, modern versions of those genres. Uh, so that's, you know, we can get into that discussion and also kind of just, you know, see where we could take the, the podcast if that's uh, where uh, we decide to go. I really want to leave it up to to all of you, the listeners. Uh, there's a lot of different ways that we can present uh, this information you know, besides podcast form. And so really, I just wanted to nail down, we just wanted to nail down the, the timeline and kind of have that core structure in place and at least have that out and go from there because that the narrative that this timeline presents is a little bit different uh, than the narratives that we commonly hear as far as the way it's, uh, it, it progresses, the lineage itself, uh, how it progresses through time and the inclusion of different cultural components and social components and some of the artists that we, ne we don't necessarily hear, but were really uh, the innovators of, you know, these various uh, styles and genres. So that's where, that's where we'll go. Um, but for now, we'll focus on this final episode. We've already talked uh, pretty in depth about hip hop. We're already pretty deep in the hip hop uh, movement. Um, really kind of left off still talking about block parties and how that has progressed into commercial hip-hop now and now we really get into some of the innovations and some of the artists that really turned hip-hop into what we now know as hip-hop or rap and to start that off we start with a technology an invention um, which is very important it's the Roland TR-808. And most of you have, who have listened to any record, and I'm sure listeners, especially especially listeners to this podcast, are going to be well familiar because this is pretty well-known, um, very current. You still hear it in modern music um, as far as it, the, it's really the original uh, widely used programmable drum machine. It was created by Ikataro uh, Kakashi Kakahashi who is also known as the founder of Roland uh, which was in 1980 and it's kind of an interesting story just because like a lot of things that we've talked about um, on this in this uh, series it was originally uh, a failure commercially um, the early drum machines uh, developed by Roland really had uh, really had families in mind uh, in the 1970s, the late 90s, 1970s is when they kind of uh, first started producing them. And so the idea, since it was family-oriented, was just to be able to produce rhythms, um, you know, nothing geared toward professionals where you're going to really make and master, produce albums and professional quality music um, but the 808 came out and that was the one that was intended for pros but as you can imagine when you're trying to enter an industry you know well-established industry and you're kind of putting something out that was you know at, at least initially for families you know as you can almost think of as a toy uh, you know it's not going to necessarily break in right away people are not going to have the skills or tools to use it and so it, it might take a little bit and especially with the TR-808 um, which used 
uh, analog circuitry and it had a lot of unique quirks the components that they used um, because it was a failure failure the original TR-808 is the only one that has that those exact components and circuitry uh, some of the later models once it picked up they tried to replicate it but you know the the hardcore producers and DJs will tell you that you know you can't replicate the original um, only uh, 12,000 were ever made uh, between the years of 1980 and 1982 and then it was discontinued in 1983 so a very short window you know very few units um, they're hard to find you know some people of course will say that the modern of course there's many drum machines uh, have been made since then and even the ones that are, were made after the um, later replica models um, are are just as good um, some will say but there definitely is a um, uniqueness to the original and we'll talk a little bit more about that but um, even though they weren't commercially successful when you're talking about the wide um, range of the industry so we're not talking about hip-hop we're just talking about you know at this point you know it's music is very international and so we're talking about the international community um, adopting this and when you think about the genres that would have adopted something like this at the time when you think about disco and electronic music um, that's kind of where you would think of it being initially geared but the hip it became pretty successful um, early in hip-hop because as we've talked about with DJ Cool Herc and some of these other early DJs you know they were already very interested in um, altering and extending records you know making making the music their own um, allowing it to become you know the life of the party uh, for these block parties and different um, you know sessions that were going on and the key to the TR-808 was the bass drum sound and so right away you know you're able to um, sort of when you're extending records altering records and you're able to add a bass to really um, kind of draw that out and kind of make your own beats just from that before we even get to the sampling uh, you know that's a that's a big game changer for these DJs and then you add the ability to store samples and as we discussed earlier um, the break was one of the very early um, techniques part of the art for DJs and you know something like the TR-808 just you know opens up a whole new world of possibilities when you're able to do all these different things with the music and extend the beats um, and the, the break in, in the music um, and one of the, the early adopters that we may or may not have heard of is Yellow Magic Orchestra and that was you know probably one of the first people to or sorry first bands to adopt the TR-808 but as far as the American um, one of the first American songs that you recognize it on would be uh, Sexual Healing by Marvin Gaye and so as I was talking about before briefly as far as the quirks that kind of make the Roland TR-808 unique uh, it was one of the key components was the transistors that they used uh, they considered out, out of specification but they were purchased by Roland and you know they weren't faulty but they had um, particular qualities uh, that really it, the TR-8 has almost like a sizzling sound to it which is kind of like one of those uh, perfect imperfections where you kind of uh, end up with an accident when you think about things like distortion, intentional distortion that you hear on uh, tracks or guitarists and other songs, those types of things. You kind of get that out of the TR-8 where it was an unintentional effect that really made it a unique sound uh, for the time. Um, and so the component was also known, this 
as a 2SC828 R and that's just the the key component that really uh, gave the the unique uh sounds and so once once uh those um you know sort of uh quirky trans transistors and whatnot uh were all used up that was it and then the TR8 TR8 was discontinued 80 TR808 was discontinued and you know besides the commercial lack of commercial success um you know that's the main reason why it was discontinued and you know that's why um you know it's been hard to replicate because they have not ever been able to obtain those components and make another drum machine just exactly like the TR808 so that's the that's the bulk of what it is I mean you can really just scan around the internet the archives and find a bunch of different artists modern you know from the 80s till now who still employ the TR808 of course I think one of the most well-known records of recent times was probably Con Kanye West when he used it for his album Heartbreaks and 808s uh, but you can also hear it on you know tracks recent tracks like uh, Drunken Drunken Love uh, by Beyonce um, it also when you think about modern music you can think of 808 Mafia you know it's in the name um, and they are really a core innovator of Atlanta's trap sound as well as you know a lot of other producers using the TR-808 in that uh, trap scene. So that is the TR-808, TR-808. I don't know why I have trouble saying that. It's just a very simple. So next we'll go to back to the artists and we're going to start off with Funky 4 Plus 1. And Funky 4 Plus 1, they're a hip-hop group from New York. And their members were Jazzy Jeff, Sharon Green, also known as Chirac, DJ Breakout, Guy Williams, and Keith Keith. And they were uh, reportedly the first hip-hop group to get a record deal in 1977. And they were also the first hip-hop group to perform on national TV and they were also the first hip-hop group to have a female member Chirac uh, one of the great uh, MCs and you know some of this is kind of trivial as we've already talked about you know the first commercial hit was by Sugar Hill Gang sh shortly followed by the sequence uh, with their hit in 1979 so all the way although they were the first you know, they really didn't see success till a little bit later. And all of this, uh, all of these records are kind of trivia, trivial to a certain extent, just because, you know, in the, in the grand scheme of things, these records are first, you know, are all within that early span of hip hop. And it's kind of who came first, who was recognized first commercially. Um, and it really kind of speaks more to the, great greater cultural mu movement that was going on not necessarily you know that these particular individual acts were um you know overly innovative individually you know all they're definitely contributing the reason they're on the timeline is because they're some of the first and they kind of set the tone in the commercial sector and it's with you know the early success of hip-hop but you know it's also just kind of one piece in this big cultural movement as we talked about previously in the club scene and the block parties a lot of the stuff was kind of already developing you know in the underground so the fact that these uh different artists surfaced is very important but it's also just to, important to remember that you know this is part of a this whole hip-hop hip-hop culture that was um that was going on but their first commercial success was in the 1980s with that's a joint and that was when they uh, performed on saturday night live which was the first time we saw a hip-hop group perform on national tv and 
that really ended them up, helped them, you know, kind of catch, uh, catch fire. And they were asked after that to open up for Blondie, but Sylvia Robinson uh, prevented them from doing so. And, you know, that's kind of one of those things that we've continued to talk about as far as this interesting disconnect and situation where we have, um, you know, people who've, black artists who've come up through, you know, have had their own success, their own careers in music, and then have, you know, kind of changed sides as they leave the performing performance side and get into the business side and kind of employ the same controls and limitations that we saw you know the other um the business the industry overall just kind of controlling artists in a way that may or may not have benefited them in the long run or may have may not have allowed them to be successful independently successful you know have the same success that they had um and to get to the positions that they are now uh, but that's really funky four plus one. Um, definitely check them out on the timeline or just, you know, in general, you know, classic MCs in that group. Um, next, we have Grandmaster Flash and the Fur- Furious Five. And this is where we really see um, the departure from the so- sort of block party hip hop scene to uh really the innovation and you know the DJs really taking it taking it taking the party music scene into the studio and you know utilizing new techniques and um you know just innovations to really create you know the definitive modern hip hop rap sound that we now uh you know, would associate hip hop or rap with just because of the in- the increased inclusion of MCs and MCs kind of having the DJ creating that uh, those beats, producing beats and music that really favors MC more than more so than the dance party. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. But uh, Grandmaster Flash, also known as Joseph Sadler, he was born in Barbados. He grew up in the Bronx, New York, and he grew up listening to jazz records, and that, you know, really you know, was the the early um inspiration just hearing jazz records. And on top of that, he had a early interest in just the development that was going around hip hop and he was inspired by Pete DJ Jones and, of course, DJ Cool Herc. And he had the opportunity to attend Samuel Gomper's uh, vocational technical school. And so he got some tr- actual formal training in electronics. And after that, he built a mixing unit, which utilized two turntables. And he also developed the te- technique of scratching. And in addition to that, he developed other techniques along the way like a quick mix theory, backspinning, clock theory, all these different pretty well-known DJ techniques. But he was just, you know, once you obviously are able to build your own mixing unit and add that second turntable, you know, you've really put yourself in control and have opened opened yourself up to all these different techniques. And you add some of the other innovations that we're talking about at this time. And, you know, you get, you know, the modern DJ essentially, and, you know, obviously, when you listen to their music, it sounds, you know, a lot more simple, maybe a lot more cut and pasty than it does now. But once you really think about what they're working with and, you know, that they're really developing all of this as they go, you know, it's, it's uh, pretty, pretty incredible. Um, so in 1976, he worked with Grand Wizard Theodore's uh, Mean, uh, mean Gene Livingston's DJ crew and that's where he became known as Grandmaster Flash and he started to work with Cowboy Keith Wiggins and Melly Mel also known as Melvin Glover and that was uh, part that was basically his original group 
it was like Grandmaster Flash and the was it the Furious Few, I think. I wanna say. And then in nineteen seventy nine he signed uh with eventually developing his own group and expanding that to you know, five rappers. So then it was officially Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. Um and you add uh Kid Creole, Dan Daniel Glover into the mix. And so you know, when you, as I was kind of getting at, when you have the emergence of DJs like Grandmaster Flash, it really shifted the attention from the party that was going on, you know, the B-Boys and B-Girls, uh, to the DJ. Because all of a sudden you have this DJ, you know, that of course initially with the block par parties, you have kind of the shock factor. You have the DJ, you know, running the show. But now all of a sudden you're employing these techniques and just doing all this madness on stage. And you're going to shift... Um, some of that attention to the DJ and so you know he started with the party records uh, releasing party party records but you know with his style you know it worked he felt it worked better with rappers and you know he felt that was almost in some cases distracting from the dancing and whatnot you know based on what he was doing so he really developed that DJ relationship with vocalists, you know, slash MCs. And eventually they signed with Sugar Hill Records in 1980. Uh, their first record was a party album, uh, Freedom. They had Freedom and Birthday Party. And then in 1981, they released uh, The Adventures of Grandmaster Flash on the Wheels of Steel, which really showed kind of that evolution of Grandmaster Flash and his abilities on the innovations he was um had already created and was working on um it's really once again you know when you listen to it it does sound like a little bit cut and pasted you know kind of like a collage but when you consider you know what uh a dj would have to do or a producer would have to do to create that at that time it's it's a uh, pretty cool and just considering what else was out you know that was really a, a just a new sound new record and you know, he had his scratches, all these techniques that, you know, were really truly groundbreaking at the time. And then in 1982, as we talked about, this kind of shift to MCs, they released The Message, which is where you see um, the Furious Five featured. And you can see that the focus is not only on MCs, but just lyrically. You can see the lyrical development from the MCs and the focus you know, that song specifically on herbal, urban, social life, social and street issues in life. And it kind of reflects and kind of ties back into the lineage of what we talked about of, of what, you know, this sort of uh, blue lineage type music represents. You know, even though the sound changes, the message um, remains the same. And the music itself, of course, follows the same lineage as well. So, you know, that was kind of their pinnacle at the time. You know, once again, we've talked about a number of artists who, you know, were not necessarily focusing on commercial hits um, in the timeline. We're really looking at innovation and some of these early artists who just, you know, created and designed the sound. And so this was kind of the pinnacle for them um, just because of the diverse interests. You know, you have essentially six people and people who are obviously very creative, um, you know, really creating the sound as you go. And so in addition to just different views and also once again, some barriers and issues like compensation by Sugar Hill Records, they had a uh, difficulty keeping that unified focus and goal. And so, you know, they had some court appearances and eventually the group just mutually, um, went their separate ways to record and and probably you know we've probably out of that group the best known um artists or d and dj is is of course grandmaster flash but also melly mel and we saw them kind of come back and unite at different points of their career to perform but that's kind of it for the grandmaster flash and the furious five at least for this timeline uh, but definitely take a look at those 
those two tracks because you know I think number one when you just talk about the the instrumentals um, that Grandmaster Flash was releasing there super innovative pretty pretty incredible considering the time and how early it was um, and then just when you listen to the message you know thinking about you know how that contrasts to some of the artists and lyrics that we've talked about and also just when you think about modern content modern rap and how that how it compares there um, certainly you know the flow um, the lyrical delivery has changed and evolved but I think the content um, and just considering how early it was uh, it's you know very uh, very good quality stuff to listen to very historic and important So next on the timeline, we have Beat Street, and Beat Street is an interesting entry. Um, just because it's a movie, and it was created and produced by Harry Belafonte. And Orion Pictures, which is his uh, film company. And it was initially a failure by the box office. But it became really important, uh, not only here, but especially internationally. And it's really a classic in hindsight. And it's really a, an important marker of the state of hip-hop at the time. It's kind of almost like a time capsule um, of what everything looked at in that late not well, really early eight nineteen eighties, um, at this point, and it really uh, in nineteen eighty three, a lot of studios took a lot of interest in trying to capitalize on this rapidly increasing interest in hip hop. Uh, they saw Wild Style and Style Wars, two independent films, have a lot of success in that independent uh, film world uh, by critic had a really good critic response and so that led to a lot of studios trying to really rapidly make a multiple projects and I think you know that was a good thing you know to really capture the movement that was happening but I think this this rush to really kind of capitalize is the key word um, to really profit um, kind of led to the kind of rushed feelings and uneven plot and what seemed like forced writing at times um, in these movies, including Beat Street. And even the art, when you look at the movie, you know, it was carefully thought out um, and it's supposed to be authentic as far as street art, um, graph art. But because you know, the studios kind of turned that from, you know, taking original art and having the studios manufacture it or make it. It really does have a manufactured appeal. And specifically for Beat Street, they actually had um, Puma. Uh, they outfitted the cast. And so that's another thing where, you know, there's a clear commercial interest. You know, the studios are trying to really put all this together and really... Uh, you know, I think there was genuine interest, definitely by Harry Belafonte and these a lot of these producers to capture this movement. But also, you know, there's definitely a commercial interest where you're, you know, infusing all of these other things into the movie. And it takes away a, a little bit from the authenticity, I think, of the movie. Um, Beat Street was interesting just because in addition that was, you know, you're, you're outfitted with Puma and it was the movie itself was sent centered uh in the holiday season winter holidays in bronx new york and it then premieres in the summer of 84 so you know, there's a little bit disconnect there you know you're kind of having this loose holiday winter theme um and you know people are in the theaters in the summer hot summer watching this so there's a little bit disconnect there you know if you really wanted to have a um full impact 
for what the movie was, you know, you probably would want to have a little bit more continuity there between when it was recorded or filmed and when it was released. But uh, regardless, you know, the movie itself, the cameos alone are incredible. I think created a really good snapshot of the time. And they really did try to be authentic um, and really represent the hip hop community. But you see, you know, people like Cool Herc, Africa Bambada, Soul Sonic Force, Jazzy J, Melly Mel, and the rest of the Furious Five, the Rocksteady crew, uh, Dougie Fresh. And, you know, we, we, in the movie, you see Rocksteady crew versus New York uh, City Breakers, which was uh, a really cool uh, crew duel. Um, in the film, it was probably one of the better performances or highlights of the film. But there were other pretty, you know, notable performances. Um, and even though, you know, it doesn't necessarily all go together sometimes, um, the the performance individually were still, you know, pretty good. They were still snapshots, even though you know they definitely could have been better, or captured better. Um, it's it's still, you know, um, a great like I said, almost time capsule of the times. And the graph writers, uh, Phase 2 and Blast, were also brought in as artist consultants. As I said before, you know, they wanted to have that authenticity and that respect. But once again, you know, there was a little bit of something was a lost in translation between, you know, the authentic art and, you know, what was produced by the studios. But, you know, once again, the, the focus here is just you know, the attention to detail and the intent of it. Um, and they had Arthur Bake Baker handle the music, uh, the soundtrack. Um, and like I said, it didn't, even though it didn't do well in the box office, um, the, what followed after that initial release, the media exposure, and it was very successful in the movie rental market, and eventually got very popular and it aged much better than some of the other movies like a lot of people will compare it to Breakin', uh, which saw a lot more initial success but over time Beat Street definitely aged better and that focus on authenticity really paid off in the end because if you watch Breakin' now it seems a little bit almost cheesy um, a little bit uh, you know, fake-ish you know, in comparison um, to Beat Street, what, in my opinion. Um, and it was, you know, important in hindsight, but as was also at currently, well, not currently, but at the time, it was very important popularizing hip-hop culture in Europe um, because now all of a sudden the international community was able to see hip-hop culture. You know, you, we've talked about music um, and some of the artists, U.S. artists traveling around to Europe and different parts of the world and spreading music that way. And obviously records and whatnot are internationally uh, released now. But the visuals, you know, the ability to see what hip hop culture and, you know, this is very important because when you get into, especially when you get into funk and now when you get into hip hop culture, you talk about the importance of the actual cultural identity that the the important, um, the important visuals that kind of go along with that. Uh, with funk, it was more of, like we said before, it was more of a personal movement. It was more of a movement for the black community, even though it did have a lot of international success. It did uh, help connect the black community to Africa and other um, uh, African uh, cultures of Af African descent. But now, you know, you're able to really see it um, through movie. There's very limited ability for international communities to really have a, a visual of this hip hop movement and everything that was going on as far as the art and the dance and all of that. Um, and so now, you know, you have an actual, a whole movie that, you know, theoretically captures what was going on pretty well. Uh, you have to remember that, you know, this is before MTV was just starting and there was a delay in having, you know, non-pop black artists, uh, was, as we kind of already discussed, uh, in on MTV. And, you know, there weren't really other programs that would have reached those communities in that way. 
and especially beyond just concert performances, you know, when you're really getting into the actual culture, like what, what hip hop meant, you know, in New York and these other communities. And so I think, you know, it might not be super important to the listeners of this podcast just because there's kind of uh, inherent knowledge for many of us, but just kind of recognizing what Beat Street meant uh, to the whole greater movement as far as kind of popularizing it beyond the United States and and also, you know, popularizing it for other communities that, you know, did not have access to the music. And that was one of the reasons why it was so successful in the rental um, market just because you have to remember with uh, the box office, depending, you know, where it was when you have one or two screens or fewer screens to view a movie, you're going to have um, some picking and choosing depending on the market, what's played. So the rental market, of course, we've kind of talked about that there was a, a great interest in, you know, some of these different sounds, whether they acquired it through mixtapes or, th- you know, s- through these other sort of secondary markets. And that was kind of the way that hip hop in general kind of spread throughout, um, you know, the United States and beyond uh, for some of these listeners who didn't have access to the sort of urban um this urban community landscape where it was going on. So that's Beat Street. And to close uh, the timeline, we have kind of an interesting decision um, with Unity, which was a song slash video, eventually became a music video. And, um, you know, it's more, it's more symbolic than anything when you talk about the title, Unity. Um, It's kind of ironic in some ways because, you know, as as far as everything we've talked about, as far as black American music history goes, Unity was uh, a song by James Brown and Africa Bimbada. And both of these legends are, you know, huge innovators in the music, as far as music goes, but they're also steeped with controversy. And in many ways, they became kind of products of the music industry, as we've talked about, at least with James Brown. We didn't really get into African Bambada. But, um, you know, in the end, you still have to recognize their contribution uh, for what it was. And I think in this case, just focusing on the song and video in particular, you know, this... This, of course, was the end of the funk era. You know, we saw a lot of shift in politics at this time, and we saw that this also kind of represented the close of many of the black social movements that we talked about with in the 1970s and 1980s that aligned with the funk and early hip hop uh, scenes. And you know, we saw a lot, of the, a lot of the social reforms and the social progress that kind of aligned with this you know, this kind of marked a decline or closing of that. And even though that ended, these social issues, you know, really remained um, with this uh, growing narrative of the model black family or citizen versus the crime and drug use that later drove uh, like the crime bills and crack epidemic that, that uh, of course took place uh, soon after. So, you can see this shift. Um, you know, of course, James Brown is one of the uh, innovators of funk, and African Babada is one of the early hip hop artists. And this video was uh, a landmark as far as the first real uh, official collaboration between James Brown and a uh, another hip hop artist. And when you listen to the song, uh, the music itself is really has a positive music, but it feels a little bit curated and crafted. Um, you know, I think certainly when you listen to it now, it kind of so- sounds like a song that you might like listen to in school or something. You know, it has a it has very clear the the themes are clear. It's all about peace, love, and unity, and having fun. That's like the whole theme of the song. And so it doesn't really address the other structures or the other things that that might, the other barriers 
it's kind of like, you know, you know, anyone can do this or accomplish this if they want to. That's kind of the vibe that you get from that song. Uh, but it does, the song does at the same time contain references to past movements and pay homage to some of, you know, like James Brown's songs. And, you know, you have to wonder how much of this content really, uh, really was to kind of pull James Brown into the project and not necessarily, you know, produce a, a, you know, commercial or, you know, real genuine hit. It was more of just a, you know, kind of a, I don't want to say a marketing stunt, but, you know, if it was more about the appearance and kind of the theme more so than the actual uh, content of the, the song and music. But, you know, I think it's, you know, probably in poor taste to criticize this last entry of the timeline or take a negative stance, you know, because I think overall the song is very positive. Um, I think it definitely successfully spreads the, the message of unity. And it really marks, I think, the beginning of a new era. You know, we, or, you know, you can think of it as a marking of the end of an era. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, you should, number one, listen to the song. And, you know, I think that is one of the reasons why it's the final entry of the timeline, just because, you know, we have hip hop. We're probably certainly can argue that we're still in this hip-hop era or rap era, depending, you know, some people would say that, you know, hip-hop is dead. Um, you know, I don't necessarily take that stance, but some people will take that stance. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, hip-hop has definitely have, has evolved, rap has evolved. Um, some people will say for the better, some people will say for the worse, but, as I was saying earlier, the lyrical delivery, the beats, you know, the technology employed and the way um, artists integrate other genres and other, you know, subgenres and types of music definitely has enriched and changed hip hop slash rap. But um, I think that you can definitely make the argument that we're still in this era and from the social and uh, cultural standpoint, you know, it's hard to say that we've really moved forward or moved on from this. Uh, so the the main takeaway from this ending, from this being the final entry of the timeline, is just to show that you know we're in this hip hop era, kind of a close of the funk era, and that political and social shift where we're saying you know before this we were really in a movement where the black community was really in a position to thrive, and parts of it continue to thrive, but we saw it a change of stance in the, the, the politics and some of these the social movements kind of faded away and we kind of saw this message that uh, similar to unity where we it's in some ways it felt manufactured where now um, the black community had made it and it was just a matter of you know focusing on these themes peace love and unity and having fun and everything would be okay and you know I think that that can resonate with a lot of, uh, of people during that time and following that time who would say that, you know, there's still a long way to go. You know, this is still, these social movements still had a lot of merit and perhaps, you know, there was, you know, other things at, at play, including the music industry that was kind of trying to focus and extract this commercial component, um, you know, the business side of, hip hop and what was happening there and really transforming into the uh, the music we know today where people uh, people who are critics, you know, people always say, you know, rock is dead, hip hop is dead, you know, and I think a lot of that comes from just the change of, uh, as we've talked about, the shift of focus from the artist to the industry, which is unfortunately in some cases uh, really kind of robbed um, audiences from that authenticity and that message that comes from the artist, you know, the artist's pen and, you know, um, instrument and writing. 
and you know their actual core message is kind of distorted in the process as as far as getting it to the listener and getting to that final product that final record you know how long the records are you know how long uh sorry how long the not only how long the records are but how long each track is you know what is the financial uh payoff for having a longer track versus a shorter track uh you know those type of things and and uh, also of course we've talked about some of the the friction that occurs between artists and and um these labels and just the business in general and the ability to make money and continue to make money as an artist um, in the industry, you know, when you have a lot of uh, these large music and record companies, you know, kind of commanding and dictating and get a lot of bloat as far as, as far as administrative staff and all these other components, legal components, all of this, you know, can, you know, cost money and can take away from the art and, you know, we talked about with the Motown era how it was almost very mechanical in some respects as far as having a team of writers, a house band, and really trying to produce, you know, find a formula and continue to produce it, replicate it, and, you know, just have success from that. And, you know, that, that's kind of how the industry has grown and continued to grow. But, you know, with that said, you know, we still have a lot of these artists who are continuing to innovate. We have, you know, with the internet and other things, we have, you know, a thriving, independent, um, you know, underground scene. And, you know, by no means is this supposed to be the, you know, the end of music, of course, uh, or the end of time. The timeline does not mar mark the end of good music. You know, there's a lot of areas where you can criticize, you know, where the music has gone and where it's going. But, there's a lot of uh, bright spots, you know, there's, like I said, there's clearly, if you look around, there's a lot of innovators and, you know, musicians who are able to, you know, really sur thrive, survive and thrive independently, utilizing, you know, other methods that were previously unavailable, like, you know, just using YouTube and, you know, some of these streaming services in some cases, and, you know, just other avenues are opening up. Um, so, you know, we'll see. We'll see where it goes. And, you know, that's really a discussion for another episode, I think. But, you know, by no means is this ending date you know, supposed to represent anything more than kind of this last innovation of what I just talked about. And, we'll, and as I said before, um, you know, how we'll continue this, this, uh, this project is um, kind of up in the air. We have the timeline in place. Uh, we've broken down, you know, what this blue lineage represents, what the timeline represents. You know, all these different artists, and you know, all these different um, inventions, technology, um, these social movements and pol political movements that correspond and um, align with everything that was going on in the, in the development of these different genres. And so, of course, we still have, you know, blues, R&B, rock, funk, and hip-hop today. And and hip-hop is, of course, the most recent. And, you know, we'll see. Uh, this, I think that, um, well, you know, we'll talk about it another episode. I'm not trying to get into the, to, into the final discussion, the outro. I don't want to get too into that um but we covered everything that we needed to in this episode and we got to unity and the, the timeline 1984 um like i said next week there will be a bonus episode that was previously recorded um it's kind of a side project a little bit of a kind of go on it's, it's kind of it's a little bit different it covers the the entirety of a timeline um but adds in a little bit of an additional discussion that, that you'll see. Um, and then after that, we'll have the outro and the final discussion, and then we'll see, you know, I, as I said before, there's a lot of different ways that we can put out um, content about uh, current, past, current, and future artists that we'd like to focus on in different uh, subjects and current events that are happening. 
there's a lot of different ways to do it and podcast is only one so you know i'll talk about it again in the final episode but you know feel free please uh reach out uh, with any ideas or if you have anything that you know you felt that wasn't covered or would like to cover more in depth uh, i know personally that there's a lot of different stuff that you know more in depth and more events that could have been talked about and can be talked about um and i'm really open you know it's uh the project is really supposed to be more of a community driven project and you know i've appreciated all the feedback and ideas so far and you know it's really open you know i think that you know diving deep into the history of this lineage was important because it's not necessarily um something that is assembled this way um, a lot of times a lot of times you might talk about an individual genre you might talk about runk runk that's rock and funk combined you might talk about rock um and kind of that rock history you know what are who are the artists that contributed to it where did it go and you don't necessarily put it all together th- this way you don't necessarily include the innovations that contributed or the artists you know from the beginning who really set the stage for rock and of course a lot of the artists that we talked about are really not well known and but were also core contributors and also where it goes you know you, you can get in when you get into these genres like rock or something you can get in the subgenres you can get kind of lost and all of that and so it's not to take away from any of those other components or subgenres but the line the blue lineage was really to kind of streamline and focus on you know these elements of what represents um black american music from the standpoint of the blues and so that's that's really that um you know and and they all still exist today you can argue that you know there's you know if you take r&b of course there's neo soul there's modern r&b and it sounds much different than the r&b that we talked about early in the timeline compared to the more modern r&b artists and of course the current artists so you can can talk about it all day but really this is the core structure and where we go from here is you know it's really up to you um so i always appreciate feedback ideas and you know we'll see where it goes but i um, hope you tune into the next uh, bonus episode and i look forward to closing this closing this out and uh, hearing from all of you uh, thanks for listening again um i'll see you next time